Thank you for listening to a message from the Bowden Church of Christ. For more information, visit www.bowdenchurchofchrist.com. That's www.bowdenchurchofchrist.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Bowden Church of Christ. We pray that this message is a blessing to you and helps you to serve God and find satisfaction in Him alone. And now, our speaker. Good morning, everyone. We've got a great crowd here this morning. It's good to see everybody. Let's take our Bibles, and we're going to open up to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, as we continue to study the parables of Jesus. The parables of Jesus. Many times in my you know, few years as a minister, I have conducted Q&As for congregations. I've done Q&A sessions at camps, done Q&A sessions at retreats. And it is without fail that when we do Q&A sessions, I get a wide variety of questions. Some questions that I get are very serious questions. People are curious about the truth of the Bible, things they've studied or read, and they want to know an answer. Other times, I get what I would call silly questions. Now, occasionally you'll get a silly question in a Q&A, like, did Adam have a belly button? Were there polar bears on the ark? Um, then you'll get other questions like, are tattoos sinful? Things like that that are asked almost every time I do a Q&A. And then, sometimes in a Q&A, I will be given a question that is a real thinker. You know, one I've really got to chew on for some time. I ran across, now this is not in a religious context, but I ran across such a question this week, I've even talked to some of you in this room about this question, that was a real thinker. And the question goes this way. How many of you do you think you could answer this question? Are there in the world more wheels or more doors? Now, at the surface level, you may say, Josh, that's not a real deep question, but I beg you to think that the more you think about it, the more you will be faced with the question of, well, which side do I fall on? For instance, you may say, hey, Josh, there's more wheels in the world. I would say, okay, shopping carts, luggage carts. You think about motorcycles, two wheels, no doors. Tricycles, three wheels, no doors. Wow, lots of wheels in this world. Some of you may say, well, Josh, no, 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 no. I know what you're saying about wheels, but I think there's more doors. I mean, think about it. Advent calendars, 24 doors, no wheels. Think about a cruise ship. There may be some wheels on a cruise ship, but man, there's a lot of doors. Lockers, post office boxes, safety deposit boxes. Wow. Then you may ask, okay, well, what constitutes a wheel? What constitutes a door? Some of you on the way home are going to nudge the person in the car with you and say, all right, which side are you on? (laughs) Wheels or doors? This is a similar question to one that was posed a few years ago on social media. How would a dog wear pants? Now, you may say, Josh... This is an obvious answer, but the people of social media had it at one another's throats over this question. For instance, you may say a dog would wear his pants like the illustration to your right my left, but the dog has four legs. That would leave two legs uncovered. Maybe the dog wears pants this way. Questions can be curious things. 
when we're very serious about wanting to know the answer. And that's where we find ourselves in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, where the Bible sets up for us a situation that leads to a story that Jesus ultimately gives us a synopsis for. The setup begins here in verse 25. A lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying to him, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. Now you may ask yourself, what were lawyers in the first century? Were they like the lawyers of today? To which I would answer, kind of. Lawyers of the first century were somewhat like the lawyers and attorneys of today. It's just there is a difference in the expertise of the law that they covered. In the first century, the law of a lawyer was the law of God, the law of Moses. Some dealt with civil law because God's law was so mixed with civil law. But nonetheless, the lawyers of the day dealt with the law of God, while the lawyers of today deal with civil law. And that law would, of course, refer to the 613 commandments found in the Old Testament, which are summarized in the Ten Commandments of Moses, the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20, which are summarized by the two commandments Jesus gave to love God and love others, which is what we'll talk about some this morning. That's the law that they were so obsessed with, the law that they became experts about. Now, Luke gives us some indications to the setup of this story as far as the motivation or the motive of the lawyer in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and then you'll see it again in verse 29. If you look down in verse 29, you would see that here in verse 25, it said that he stood up to test Jesus, and then in verse 29, he spoke to Jesus in a desire to justify himself. So you have a very clear motivation that he intended both to test Jesus and to walk away himself feeling justified. Now, you and I should not allow his motivation to overshadow the fact that this lawyer did come to Jesus with a measure of respect. He referred to him as teacher. Even further than that, this lawyer came to Jesus with a very profoundly important question. In verse 25, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a very profound question that this man asks. It's not trivial by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, this may be the question that you've come to worship with this morning. If there is eternal life to be discovered, how must I go about discovering it? That question is very important because the discovery of eternal life sometimes shocks us. That we're even concerned about that because our lives are so dedicated to the here and now. Sometimes we wonder why we lay in bed at night thinking about eternal life. And you may even lay in bed at night and wonder about why you wonder. <laughs> why am I so consumed with this idea of what happens after I die? Why am I interested in it? The answer can found in, be found in the Bible because, of course, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, the Bible says that God has placed eternity in the heart of man and woman that we might seek after him. You ever curious why you wonder about what happens after you die? That's because God put that wonder in you. He wants you to be curious about what happens after you die. And harbored inside of each one of us is this nagging uncertainty of we don't know what happens when we breathe our last breath. And so that makes this question from the lawyer both relevant and contemporary. It's a beautiful question. One, I believe all of us should ask every day, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you do a little study into the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and particularly the setup here of Luke 10, 25, what you'll find is that a lot of people believe that the lawyers of the first century were also classified as priests, which, if that were to be true, if this man considered a lawyer was an expert in the law, often 
were referred to the same as priests, that would add to the drama of the parable Jesus is about to tell because one of the main characters in the parable is a priest. Nonetheless, we don't know that for sure. All we know is that this man was an expert in the law. So I ask you, how should Jesus respond to this question? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? How would Jesus or how should he respond? Well, Jesus, in his typical fashion, in Luke 10, verses 26 and 27, responds the same way that anybody who is familiar with public discourse would respond, and that is through a myotic approach, a Socratic approach, answering a question with a question, and that's exactly what he does in verse 26. He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. The lawyer, in this particular instance, gives a textbook question in which he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, from the Hebrew Shema. Now, of course, uh, you'll see on the screen that I left off uh, verse 26, and I gave verse 27 and 28. In verse 26 of this passage, it says, What is written in the law, and how shall you read it? And that's Jesus' response to him, and this is what the man responds with. It is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your mind. And then he adds to it what is directly connected to the Hebrew Shema, Luke, uh, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, in which Leviticus 19 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What Israelites did was they connected Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 to Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And they said to love God with all of the things mentioned, you had to love your neighbor. Who was your neighbor? Well, it says in that verse, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the son of your own people but love your neighbor as yourself. So, in order to determine who my neighbor was, it was directly tied to kinship. A son of your own people. Making Leviticus 19 and verse 18 a simply nationalistic view, and they were willing to love their neighbor provided they were able to decipher who their neighbor was. Hence, the question that comes up in a moment from the lawyer. Now, you have probably already asked, and I did too, so in an effort not to spend all of our time on this, I will answer your question very quickly. What does it mean to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength? Leviticus, or Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. And just in a pass-by, we could say that Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, to love God with all your heart would mean to love God with the seed of my emotions. My heart is the seed of my emotions. To love God with all of my soul, the next statement he says, is to love God with the real me, our vitality, that part of us that is eternal. I love God with that part of myself. He goes on to say that I love God with all my heart, my soul. Then he says with all my strength. To love God with all my strength means that I love him with my drive and my energy, my talents and the things that I could put into this world. And then to love God with all my mind is my intellect and disposition. It covers the whole of man. Love God with everything you have, your emotions, your vitality, your energy, and your intellect. The lawyer has asked to beat Jesus out 
In Leviticus, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? For he set out to justify himself. He has asked Jesus this question to beat him out, and Jesus responds to a question with a question, to which the lawyer gives a fantastic answer. And I would imagine that the lawyer may have been floored at what Jesus says at the end of this passage. He answered, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, I would believe that this lawyer expected Jesus to give some teaching that did not accord with the Old Testament law, and therefore he could say to Jesus, you are exactly wrong, Jesus, and here is your guilt and your sentence. But Jesus answers, you must keep the law. And I believe that statement speaks so loudly for us as Christians today. There are many within Christianity that submit that once you have trusted Jesus, all law is set to the side. But Jesus affirms that if heaven would be our home, we are immersed not only in divine allegiance, but in loving deeds. Because Jesus is making it very clear that loving deeds don't merit an entrance to heaven, but loving deeds and allegiance to God is the unavoidable mark of every person headed to heaven. Loving deeds are not the merit that get me into heaven, but loving deeds are the mark of those who are headed there, and it's unavoidable. This man knew that he had not kept it. He says in Luke chapter 10 and verse 28, uh, Luke Luke chapter 10 here, uh, verse 28, that you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And in Luke 10, 29, we learn a little bit more of the motive of this man. He says to set out to justify himself, which the word justify means to render innocent, to be free from guilt or penalty, to justify himself, he said, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? Jesus sets out to correct him with a story to give him an opportunity to be humbled. And so we have the story, Luke 10, 30 through 35. Now remember, we're studying parables. The word parable means to throw beside. So Jesus takes a spiritual truth, a story, throws them down side by side. We take them up and compare them and say, where do I fit into this? And the story begins in verse 30. He says here in verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Depending on the translation you have sitting in front of you, it may say a certain man. Now, let's not go beyond this point before we realize that the most popular parable of Jesus, at least in my honest opinion, a parable by which we have named some state laws, a good Samaritan law, which allows you to take care of others without really the fear of legal trouble. We have taken the good Samaritan parable and made it into a label that compliments people who are very generous or really helpful or kind. That this story speaks to our soul, and that's why it's so popular. That at the beginning of the story, as Jesus introduces this story, He's speaking to a man who wants to know how to identify who his neighbor is, and Jesus gives him no details to figure out if the man in the story is a neighbor. Listen to what he says here in this first statement. A certain man, not a single word describes this man's status, his nationality, the nature of him, if he is a good or a bad man. He is simply a man. Then he is a naked man. Then he is a helpless man. Then he is a needy man. He is simply a human being. How brilliant on the part of the Lord. 
There is no possible way to classify this man as a friend or a foe. And as Jesus speaks this story to a man who wants to know how to figure that out, Jesus gives him no way to determine if this man was a neighbor. We don't know if he's a Jew, if he's a Samaritan, if he's rich, if he's poor, if he's smart, if he's dumb, is he religious or irreligious. He's just a man. Of course he is. That's the point, right? You don't know if this man is a friend or a foe. He's just a man. A man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, you not only have a certain man in this verse, but you also have a pretty interesting place. Traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho is a drop, from what I understand, of about 3,000 miles in elevation. Uh, you're here. I'll just show you the illustration. At the top here is Jerusalem, where you have uh, kind of the Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives. And as you travel from Jerusalem down to Jericho, you come all the way down here to the bottom section of the map where Jericho is. Here's sea level. So you've got Jerusalem about 2,000, almost 3,000 miles above uh, sea level. Then you've got Jericho, which is below sea level. So you're dropping significantly. You know how your ears pop when you drive on a mountain? I would imagine this is an ear-popping journey, right? You're dropping quickly over the course of just, you know, in the teens of miles. Maybe 14, 16 miles between Jerusalem and Jericho. Now, in that drop of elevation, it's not just a downward journey if you're going to Jericho or an upward journey if you're coming back to Jerusalem. The text tells me that this was a place where robbers were. And if you see the pictures I'm about to show you, you'll say, yeah, I see why there's robbers. Because as you travel on this road, it is not, you know, this nice cushy green belt that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho, right? You could ride your bike or rent a bike or whatever. No, this place was hilly. It was rocky, it was dry, it was dusty, and there were coves and valleys and twists and turns that could leave you vulnerable to anybody that wanted to sneak up on you. So here's an illustration of part of the road that they know is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Here's you another illustration of it. I mean, look at that. You know, it's kind of hilly. You can see if you're at a top high point. You can see kind of the bumps as you travel along. But man, you see how it goes up real high on one side and drops real low on the other side? Imagine traveling on that. That was, you know, they didn't have shoulders back then, you know. You didn't have a guardrail against the road. You were traveling a difficult road. And as you would travel that road, you had no idea who was around the next corner. And this place came to be known as the way of blood or, um, you know, other people uh, called it um, uh, the path. Uh, It was named this in the Old Testament because this path from Jericho to Jerusalem divided the land allotments in the book of Joshua from Judah and Benjamin. So that's how you determined this road. And it used a Hebrew word that meant blood. It was the pass of blood, and they think that maybe it was because so many people died on it, or there was some really reddish-colored limestone in the sides of the mountains that may have looked like blood. So there's a couple of ideas of why it was named that. But nonetheless, this man traveling on this road that's very difficult, he finds the inevitable. Robbers find him. They jump him. And the Bible says, after a brutal beating and a robbing, they leave him half dead. The word half dead means to be semi-alive, or it's translated in some uh, translations entirely exhausted. He is semi-alive or semi-dead. Today we would say that this man is in critical, critical condition. So Luke chapter 10 and verse 31, by chance, you believe in chance? This might be something you could chew on, by chance, by chance. book of Ecclesiastes speaks to that. Book of Proverbs talks about it. By chance, there is maybe a glimmer of hope, right? 
This man, in verse 31, is traveling, and Jesus offers what should have been the best-case news, right? A religious man who would have obviously been concerned with helping other people who are in need, obviously be concerned about that. Now, we don't know the full details of what condition this man was in, but a priest came by, and going down that road, he saw that man. Could you imagine what kind of condition this man was in? I mean, just, just picture this scene in your mind. Was he able to ask for help? Was he able to cry out to somebody and say, you know, help me, I need help? Was he able to even see that somebody was coming? Was he beaten so bad that both eyes were swollen shut and he couldn't see whether somebody was coming? Could he speak or was he too dehydrated to even utter a word? Was he drifting in and out of consciousness? He was humiliated, I know that, because he had no clothes on, laying on the side of the road in a place that's not only dry, but it's hot, probably getting severely sunburned. What was he thinking about as he laid on the side of that road? What would you think about? Was he thinking about his family? Was he thinking about his childhood, maybe thinking about his mother or his father, maybe his wife or his children? Was he, was he keen to his isolation? Did he know he was alone? Did he not want to be alone? Did he know the inevitable of what was coming? And did he desire just somebody to sit with him while what was inevitable was going to come? Did he want company so that he wouldn't die alone? I wonder at those things, how his heart felt as that priest approached him. Finally, somebody. A spiritual man who served God would have been the pinnacle of compassion, at least we believe so, but his hope is short-lived. Because the priest sees this man vulnerable and in need, and he just turns a blind eye. The phrase in verse 31 is an active verb signifying that the priest deliberately relocated to the other side of the road so that he would be out of the way of this injured traveler. Verse 32, likewise a Levite. Now, of course, all priests were from the tribe of Levi, but they were descendants of Aaron. The Levites were from the tribe of Levi, but they were not descendants of Aaron. So they were like uh, many priests, I guess. They couldn't serve in that role as a priest because they weren't descended from Aaron, but they could actually do some other things in the temple. They were a part of the assistants that, that served the priests. They helped in temple maintenance. And regardless of this man's position in religious Hierarchy, he was devoted to religious service, and he should have been expected to know the same thing the priest knew. Like the priest, the Levite passed on the other side. The spring from which his compassion flowed was dried up, and his love was stale. It seems to me this is kind of reminiscent of another statement Jesus makes earlier in Luke 10, where he actually prays to God, and he says, God, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent of this world. The Levite and the priest, were the, they were the wise and prudent. Now, men who represented their culture's best and were the most highly esteemed religious dignitaries, yet they did not know God. When you and I are faced with opportunities to demonstrate love and care for someone who is obviously in need, how do we respond? These men observed ceremonial law, they did service in the temple, and yet they lacked all real virtue. Where do you and I fall in this Story And sometimes, you know, we can read the hypocrisy of this story and say, well, these two men, oh, yeah, that's terrible. They shouldn't have done that. And maybe even feel morally superior, but I believe all of us, we must guard ourselves from this moral superiority of the parable. As we look into this parable, may we find ourselves not in the priest and the Levite, but in the shoes of the Samaritan. Because the Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, the Bible says he had compassion 
on him. There's kind of an unexpected twist in this story, right? You know, they, they wouldn't have expected this. This man was traveling alone, who's introduced. He's a Samaritan. He's unlike the professional clergyman. He's unlike the Levite. The Bible said he had compassion now, let me give you the word picture that the word compassion displays. It means intestinal yearning. What it communicates is that you see something and your stomach goes in knots because you ever had that happen? Maybe somebody called you and they told you something and your stomach just sunk and knotted up. Maybe you saw something about to happen and you wanted to stop it, but you couldn't and your stomach just, oh man. It's like when you think about it, you almost feel it happening. That's what the word compassion means. It means intestinal yearning. Your stomach draws up in knots and your heart goes out to someone. Your stomach is so knotted up, you can't do anything but do something for that person. That's what the word compassion means. Jesus looked out on the crowds and he had compassion on them for they were like sheep without a shepherd. His stomach yearned to help them. I'm hurting for you or I feel for you. That's the idea of compassion. Your pain is causing me pain and I want to alleviate it for you. I want you to notice the difference with me very quickly. The difference between the priest and the Levite who allowed their feelings to push them away from the man and the Samaritan who allowed his feelings to push him towards the man. The priest and the Levite saw the man as a burden. The Samaritan was pushed towards the man because he was not a burden, but he felt his burden, and he took it on himself. It makes it very obvious. The issues were not with their schedules, their responsibilities, their ceremonial cleanliness, or their expectations. The problem lied within their heart. It lied within their heart. Jesus Likewise, has compassion on us. So he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Of course, uh, you know, the oil was kind of like an antiseptic. It would clean out the wound and then the, oil, or the wine would clean it out. And then the oil would uh, kind of soften the skin and keep it from being infected. And he would bandage him up. Now remember, in the story, the man who was left on the side of the road was robbed. He had nothing. So everything that the Samaritan used on this man came from the Samaritan's belongings. He put the oil that was his own, the wine that was his own, the bandages that were his own. He picked the man up and put him on his own donkey and took him into the inn and he took care of him. He didn't just leave him at the inn, he took care of him. Luke chapter 10 and verse 34. The Bible tells me here that this man bore the burdens of the injured man as if they were his own and used his own provisions to care for him. This is not minimal care. It is extraordinary sacrifice. And so in verse 35, after this man takes care of this man's problems as if they were his own, verse 35 says the next day he took out two denarii, two days wages, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now I know, you know, inflation's happening and everybody's, you know, worried about the gas tank and all that kind of stuff. I get that, okay? Uh, I did a little research on how much two denarii would last in an inn in the first century. And I came up with a pretty general answer. Almost everybody said the same thing, that one denarii would last you a month in a hotel. Boy, <laughs> if you could make one day's worth of wage and live a month in a hotel, that's pretty good living, right? Now, of course, that, these weren't holiday inns. You know, no continental breakfast at the inn in the first century. But this was a place in which he left a blank check for this man. He said, to denarii, take these, care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll repay to you when I come back. We may believe it to be lavish, but I believe the Lord honors 
what this man has done. And so this concludes with a synopsis. You've got the setup, the lawyer and Jesus, the Q&A that happens, and on your way home you'll ask your you know, significant other person in the car, wheels or doors, you'll be curious about the Q&A there. Okay? So the Q&A starts this situation. The story lays out for us what happens, and here's Jesus' synopsis. Which of these three do you think provoked, uh, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Which one of the three proved to be a man who fell among robbers, a neighbor to him? And the man answered, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It does not pass me that this man did not even say the Samaritan. He said the one who showed him mercy. Maybe an indicator of his heart once again. There's a deeper lesson here, I think. I think the Good Samaritan cared for the traveler, and I think that you and I need to learn that we need to care for others, and we need to be compassionate, and our bowels need to go out to people. We need to be knotted up in our stomach when others are hurting, and we will just do anything we can to help them. I know that those are points of application, but here's what I think are the two ideas out of this story, and we'll deliver the invitation. Point of application number one, what is outward does not always reflect what is inward. We're studying the Sermon on the Mount on Sunday mornings in our Bible class and Wednesday nights here in the auditorium. And one of the things that is focused is the inward versus the outward, the internal versus the external. What is outside does not always indicate what is inside. You don't believe that? Just think of all the people you went to high school with that you thought were the coolest people in the world. And now, oh, not as cool as they used to be, right? Sometimes what is outward doesn't last. The Bible even says that about beauty. Beauty is fading, but the inward person, the, the quiet and gentle spirit, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. What is outward does not always reflect what is inward. We must be concerned with what is inward. The second point of application is this. In this story, the question is not who is our neighbor. The question is whose neighbor am I? The question is not who is our neighbor. The question is whose neighbor am I? And the answer is everyone's I should be everyone's neighbor everyone is my neighbor because every person is made in the image of God now this story is interesting in that it tells us that Jesus tells us of a man who had compassion on those that were unable to help themselves and the story dictates to us exactly what God did for us on the cross when you and I were helpless, when we were without any hope, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He cared for us. While others may walk past the side of the road when we are in spiritual ruin, Jesus kneels down, he, he heals our wounds, puts us on his own animal, figuratively speaking, and he carries us to where we need to be. Jesus is the answer to the problems of our life as far as sin is concerned. And maybe this morning you have not had Jesus as the answer to the problems of your life. Maybe you've never submitted to him in obedience, or maybe once you did, but you feel like all of a sudden now I'm the, I'm the man that's been robbed again. The world's beat me up and left me on the side of the road, and I need the Lord. Turn to him this morning. Whatever the case is, God will have mercy on you, he'll have compassion on you, and he'll save you if you're willing to submit to him. So we're going to sing this invitation song, and during it, if you need to make something known, if you need the prayers of the church, you need to come back to God, or you need to come to God and become a Christian, this is the time to do it as together we stand and sing.